Hello, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Hinesh Kalian, Head of Data Science at Hedge Fund Man Group. Hinesh is responsible for data strategy, data acquisition, data science, and data engineering across Man Group. On this episode, Hinesh talks about how asset managers are using data, how success is measured, and how data is leveraged as a competitive advantage. Please enjoy this dialogue between Hinesh Kalian and your host, Emmett Kilduff. Hi, Hinesh. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Emmett, and the Eagle Alpha team for the opportunity to do this podcast. Hinesh, you've been analyzing data for a very long time. How did it all get started for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and um, I'll probably start off with when I moved to the UK in, uh, in 2004. Um, I struggled getting a, a finance-related job. Um, although I had a finance degree, though, um, but most likely, um, I'm not sure whether anyone knows um, or many people know that I'm, I'm South African and I was a graduate with no experience around that time. Um, my accent has evolved, by the way, through time, which is good. Um, but I always had a passion for, for finance and investments, and you know, I wanted to get the most experience I could using my two-year working holiday visa at that time. Um, and I was simply you know, getting nowhere with recruitment agents at that time due to lack of experience, but also, you know, graduate programs were given first to UK graduates. So, you know, that route was proving to be to be challenging. So what I decided, and this is no joke, what I decided to do is, is to shortlist four investment banks uh, around that time and, and, and find out the names of senior managers in their you know, trading uh, analytics and sales and operations divisions and try to essentially wing my way into giving them a, a 10 minute pitch uh, on why to hire me. Um, so I literally walked in to the reception of these banks um, and asked the receptionist to call you know, those individuals and tell them, I just want to pitch uh, 10 minutes to, to them to see whether they can consider me uh, for their team. Um, and no lie, like, you know, I got escorted by security out of Lehman Brothers at that time um, and another bank, which I probably won't mention. Uh, but I was lucky enough to get the head of trading analytics um, at one bank to give me a 10-minute window. And in the end, I got uh, got a rolling monthly temp contract um, and kicked off from there. Fantastic. Fair play. That takes a lot of uh, guts and determination. Um, so that was the start of your career. Fast forward to where we are today. Uh, you've got a super role uh, running the data science team at Man Group. How did you go from, from uh, blagging your way to an interview to running a, a fantastic team at a leading hedge fund? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a great journey. Um, I would say my career really started taking off as soon as I began at Man Group. Um, looked like, that, like prior to Man Group, you know, I had a lot of foundations and experience um, across the investment banking world. But when I joined Man Group, um, I joined AHL, which is their systematic investment engine um, in 2009 as an investment analyst. So the team I was in managed AHL's um, quant models um, and their trading systems and new research implementation. And around that time, my close interactions with research teams and passion for finance essentially drew me to the quant aspect of investing. Um, After a few years, I began working on finding methods to systematically trade alternative markets, not data. Um, and at that time, we were scaling up our AHL Evolution uh, flagship fund. So I worked with research teams to source these niche markets um, and, and essentially source ways to 
you know, obtain historical raw data and create derived historical data that is reflective of that market value of that asset. Um, and this then sparked a passion for me and I became, you know, essentially the new markets person at AHL, some would say, um, you know, finding ways to trade markets like uh, electricity, coal, shipping, freight and credit derivatives, but systematically. Um, I then did like a two-year uh, two secondment in commodity quant research um, around that time at AHL, which got me then closer to the quant world. Um, and, and that led me to, you know, completing a, um, I really wanted to do a two-year um, sort of part-time master's in financial econometrics. And at that time, it's a great idea and, I, and I'm glad I've done it. Um, but midway through that, um, I had uh, a newborn newborn child. So it was uh, it was proving to be quite taxing um, trying to manage everything, but I managed to do it. Um, and then from there, you know, the journey was, uh, I started looking at AHL's operating model to define a strategy that helps um, the speed up our time to market and introduce new alpha ideas. Um, in 2017, we then formed um, AHL's investment and data implementation team, and I was made a partner then. Um, and you know that this team was more integrated with research sectors and managed all of AHL's data management and quant portfolio implementation. Um, and that's when we spun out AHL data science as a proof of concept. Now this is how it all began uh, on my side. Um, as proof of concept using a few individuals from that implementation team. And the idea was to start from the ground up and pay up with research heads and create essentially a six month proof of concept uh, okay. for, for managing uh, to highlight the benefits of, uh, of, of a central data science function. And then fast forward to mid last year, we began looking at the synergies of data science across man group. Um, so not just AHL and for us, you know, data is data and you know, we should be sourcing, curating, uh, and doing data efficiently once for all investment teams. And this is where MAN Data Science was born and launched in uh, January 2020, uh, which, uh, which I head up. Uh, and essentially it's a you know, specialized team that is part of our investment process and look at areas across the data supply chain. Fantastic. And today, what, what size is that team? And you know, broadly, how, is it, how are the different functions uh, split out? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so today the team is um, roughly uh, 12 individuals. Um, the way we split it out, which is not novel to other, other buy-side firms um, probably, um, is we have a data sourcing and strategy function um, who interact and engage with our investment teams, but are more kind of external facing, um, you know, scouting and sourcing new data, but also um, establish those vendor relationships. Uh, um, we've got then data science analytics. So these are, you know, data analysts and data scientists, which which do all the heavy lifting in terms of ingesting, you know, analyzing, structuring, and working with the PMs or the or the quant researchers to evaluate that data set. Um, and we've got data science engineering, which is kind of the third arm, um, who's focused on creating a central data platform, you know, where we can kind of automate or semi-automate as much of the you know, initial phases of, 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 of data onboarding. So we can get, we can focus on creating new data products and, and data science toolkits uh, that can be beneficial for alpha generation. Very good. So that's, that's been a helpful introduction to you and to the firm. Now I want to jump into the, the real meat of uh, today's podcast, which is all about uh, the title of the podcast, Profiting from Alternative Data, Profiting from Data. Um, so just to start, you know, how, how are you know successful buy side firms like Mangroup using all of this alternative data? 
yeah, uh, it, it is quite broad. Um, but what I, what I would, what we, I think what's quite clear is that it's no surprise that you know, there has been a surge on both sides uh, of the fences when it comes to alternative data. Um, you know, the supply side has continued to increase and the demand on this uh, on the buy side continues. So many buy side firms have turned to you know, niche information beyond standard market indicators. Um, and we've seen that also within Man Group. And why? Um, you know, because these in standard indicators are, are essentially too slow at times in reflecting changes in economic economic activity. That's like a, like a high level. So the applications are broad, but we see use is not just for quant and discretionary businesses, um, which is generally what, you know, what the what the market generally sort of splits alternative data uses, but also in risk execution in private markets. Um, and, you know, Man Group having, you know, a broad range of different investment management styles, you know, we see these applications across the board, not just quant and discretionary. Um, but I think it's what's important to understand is, is that the usage of alternative data by quant and discretionary um, managers are two different processes, right? On the quant mm -hmm. side, you know, we have been using alternative data and many firms have been using alternative data uh, for a long time before it was probably even termed alternative data um, and the benefits have not eroded. So for the quants, the natural extension of that quant pro investment process was to analyze alternative data sets in the same manner that they've been analyzing traditional financial data sets. Um, however, the usage of alternative data on the fundamental side is expanding and is expanding in Mangrove also. Um, you know, these managers, um, you know, they typically use this data to reinforce, say, their investment thesis that they derive from their regular research process. Um, but the applications of alternative data in this space is becoming more apparent and useful. And are there categories that are more uh, commonly used? Maybe if you give one or two examples for the quant side of the house and the discretionary side of the house. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so on the quant side, you know, quants would generally look at um, yeah, the typical. Typically, you look at quite broad, like you know, am I getting global coverage across you know a, a range of sort of um, equities, say for, for for example. So um, you know, trying to get data sets um, that are that are more broadly available across different regions and across different stocks, you'd, you'd see that application a bit more more applicable, but also on the macro side. Um, you, know, you can utilize, uh, say, employment data uh, that is generally seen as looking at it from an equity lens. You can aggregate that up um, to look at um, geographical employment changes, and that can be applicable to a macro quant portfolio. On the discretionary side, you can go quite deep into into certain certain assets, and and that's what's interesting. So, you're not just looking at a core level theme, but you're looking at specific indicators. It could be related to an airline solvency indicators. It could be related to credit um, or corporate debt, um, or it could be related to a certain sector like healthcare. Um, so, so you just kind of see those two applications um, quite broadly. But but I feel like the you know, the themes like, you know, social media, transaction data, geolocation, and, you know, the, uh, certain themes like that are applicable in both senses. But I think the, the, the way of analyzing the data for applications differ. Mm -hmm. And so to put you on the spot, like you've been doing data analytics for a long time. What, what's the best use case that you have seen or are, are, are aware of? Yeah. Um, 
I would say um, the question is probably open-ended, Emmett, um, and you're probably going to get a variety of responses. Um, I, I'd be lying if I had to give you one specific best case that really work well. Um, um, what I'm aware of, though, and what we've seen is um, examples is that data like uh, social media and news-based data, you know, has been useful to gauge uh, consumer sentiment. Um, and utilizing some machine learning techniques that we have, um, you know, that provides a better insight. Uh, transaction data, you know, it's, it's, it's widely known, you know, related to businesses has provided insights into consumer spending habits. Um, the geolocation data, you know, historically, I'll be honest, um, you know, wasn't, it was, it was, I would say it could have been a hit and miss at times, but, you know, during this pandemic, it, I think geolocation had, data has revived a bit and then got a bit of a spark. Um, and that obviously gives you an idea of, of changes in so, you know, social behaviors. Um, but what's been interesting recently also is retail flows. Like retail flow provides a good indication of investment flows coming through. Um, um, but I, uh, what, I, what I do generally stress is that um, not looking at it in silos, right? So having the ability to rapidly try to link these sources uh, to provide a broad picture um, of the economic state. Um, is important and that's something that requires a lot of heavy lifting um, and that is an area of focus at man your comment about retail flow was interesting uh, just this week robin hood has decided to 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 no longer sell its data right. and uh, we've had a lot of clients reach out and, and ask us for substitutes or alternatives um so yeah that, that's a really interesting timely comment um so you look at all these different data categories retail um geolocation consumer transaction um, there's a lot of data there. How ultimately do you measure success? Um, and maybe within the data science team specifically, and then how do your quant colleagues and your discretionary colleagues think about whether your team is being successful in helping them? Sure, sure. So um, I'd start off with the you know measuring success or ROI initially, and then and then I'll touch on you know data science team kind of you know providing success to the investment teams. So the I don't think it's that different, to be honest, between the quant and discretionary side. Um, you know, we are most likely to try to measure ROI or success from alternative data via an attribution type analysis. Um, so, for example, you know, before onboarding in any alternative data set, you know, we'll set a hurdle um, you know, that requires the strategy or the backtest using the data to produce alpha net of costs involving the following, involving acquiring, cleaning, structuring, and analyzing the data also, because there's gonna require some form of maintenance going forward. And then it's important that there's a continual assessment of the value being extracted from the data. On the discretionary side, um, it's, not, it's not that different. Um, you know, we built a platform to, you're gonna to need to track usage of data by PM. So what we've been doing is, you know, building a platform that, um, you know, we can show the value of a data set to a portfolio manager, but then also have an ability to track the usage when the portfolio manager wants to sort of look at that, that, that information related to the data. And it's their willingness to absorb the cost of the alternative data. On the data science function, um, there's, there's two angles. Um, one is, maybe there's three angles. One is data sourcing. Um, you know, there's, there's data that widely available and probably well known that can come quite pre-packaged. Um, 
Now, you know, what are we finding that's relatively new, um, upcoming sort of vendors um, that are, you know, willing to partner up with MAN? And so we can sort of work with trying to sort of match up that demand and supply quite, quite well. Um, and we measure success in that sense. So how many new types of prov providers we, we, we bringing out? On the data science side, it's, it's, it's about two, it's twofold. One is speed. So, you know, trying to get quick at, you know, ingesting, evaluating, data and this making a decision on whether it's feasible or not is quite important right because as you know the landscape continues to grow so you're going to continue to play catch up here um, but then on the other side it's um it's data products like building data products so you know trying to figure out okay if you looked at a data set in isolation um you know how do you look at same source sales based on geolocation and again combining point of interest and looking at supply chain or grev and then you get a bigger picture and being smart at that at having the ability to capture that is is, is where we sort of measure success so there's there's twofold there's sourcing there's throughput but there's also you know being innovative and, and you know, during that whole process, I mean, how do you um, try and differentiate? You know, what's your competitive advantage, your or unique aspects yeah. to, to your process? Yeah, yeah. Um, I th I'll start with technology because um, I think it's quite important. Um, um, you know, we certainly see the importance of investing in technology to help us leverage data. Um, you know, our data engineering team, uh, which is part of our alpha technology team. Um, is a large part of our infrastructure spend in di that is direct, and our infrastructure spend is directed into our data platform. The data engineering team is the single biggest team in Alpha Technology, which gives you an idea of how much we're investing from a technology point of view. We leverage you know, large amounts of open source software and the Python data science ecosystem. Um, and you combine that in with in-house code, and you know we may call it secret source, to build high-performing data streaming pipelines um, and storage frameworks. Um, the other two areas um, outside of tech, um, I'd say, in terms of the central data science function, um, brings its own advantages in all aspects of the data supply chain. So from sourcing, you know, ingestion, evaluation, and building data products again. Um, and man, what we've done is we focus on these capabilities, um, essentially by creating a team that bridges the gap between data demand and data supply. So a dedicated group that is plugged into the alternative data community. Um, they have an understanding of the business problem. They work closely with investment teams and try to solve questions with the data by working strategically with data providers. Another area, is bringing alternative data to fundamental investing by utilizing quant techniques. Um, you know, by bridging that gap between the portfolio manager, um, they can experiment with a wide range of investment hypotheses. So more systematic ideas can potentially be automat automatically generated and published with, which helps them um, in terms of the investment process. And do you see uh, mapping or mapping data sets um, to a common, um, you know, symbology as a core competitive advantage yeah yeah um fully especially within man group right if you if you're trying to sort of get a external identifier to then you know map internally and try to ha have that network to 
to, for the ability to map internally between different identifiers is quite important. Um, and that does give, a, give an advantage. So what we've been doing is focusing on, you know, building this robust security master or central security master that can go from external identifiers to internal identifiers, but not just within a single asset, cross asset is quite important. So a typical example would be, you know, equity to bond or equity to fixed income um, mapping, which is, which is quite important. You want to make that seamless, very efficient, very quick, very automated. Mm. So you've been, you know, in your seat for maybe just over eight, six months now. Um, uh, but but thinking about alternative data for for a lot longer than that. Um, looking back, um, what are the lessons learned? If you were to start again, start this team with a blank canvas, um, what are the lessons you'd like to uh, tell yourself with hindsight? Yeah, yeah. Um, first one, which I think a lot of people try to avoid, is governance. Don't underestimate the amount of sort of. Uh, um, you know, um, upfront work you need to do to make sure that you have appropriate, you know, data policies and governance frameworks to clearly understand what's the regulatory risk and what the business risks are. Um, second, secondly, is I go back to technology. You know, the, the engineering lift is quite quite heavy, um, but you know, tr it's important to make sure that you're building. A, when building a platform or trying to build a platform that you obtain feedback from not just a technologist, but research and investment teams and data science teams. Um, that's quite important. And then I, then the third, the third part is, is alignment and prioritization. It's like quants, you know, can do things at speed and they've, they, they've got the capabilities. So um, how do you define, how do you prioritize, you know, what a central function can do and what point of the value chain do they offer for quants versus a discretionary PM? Um, and clearly, being really clear and specific on that, um, I think is quite important. And that's a couple of lessons that uh, that, that I've personally learned. Very good. Um, uh, just maybe going a bit wider in terms of use cases, we've talked about how asset managers uh, and hedge funds specifically can use all this alternative data. What about, um, private equity, corporates, government, are you aware of relevant examples uh, and use cases yeah. for those verticals? Yeah, on the, um, I'll start with the private equity side, um, you know, because we, we've got a, a global private markets division within Man Group. Um, I think PE firms can, can use data in, in two ways. Um, firstly, to inform them about, you know, an investment opportunity, you know, example, spending um, on a, on a business in a particular sector that is growing or shrinking. And then secondly, it can be related to management of a, of a particular asset or portfolio that they have. Um, an example, you know, potential use case um, could be data related to uh, commercial housing and real estate. Um, you know, that can provide insights into commercial building projects um, that may re relate to a private equity portfolio. Um, and an example would be, um, you know, you could see that construction in some areas in Q3 in the US actually posted a mile gain over month over, uh, over the month. Um, but I think PE firms, you know, generally ask the following questions, you know, can, we, can you tell me if private companies in a certain sector, uh, or they can ask this question, um, can you tell me whether private companies in a certain sector are opening or closing or or what's are they purchasing real estate and you know footfall traffic real estate and receipt data you know, can help answer some of these questions from a PE point of or from a private equity point of view. Um, on the government side, you know, I'm not looked at this in detail. I'll be honest with you, um, but um, but I, I think it's quite well known that you know 
during this environment, um, you know, the use of location data to understand social behaviors is, is becoming a bit more apparent. Um, you know, this is useful for governments that might be trying to understand if people are following self-isolation uh, guidelines. When, when you've looked at some of these geodata data sets, and I agree we're seeing a lot of more demand than in the last six months to, to, to look at the closure of the economies a few months ago and now the reopening, you know, what sort of um, you know, benefits are you seeing? Or when you look under the hood of the data, what sort of um, uh, you know, components of the data mightn't be up to scratch or are there holes in the data and so on? Yeah, I think, I think one, of the, one of the challenges is, is, um, is the history and, and, and the persistence of the history and the panel sizes at times and the, and, and the stability of that. So trying to, one, the, the nature of the data is, is very raw, unstructured, and can be quite challenging, right? So, um, you know, we do have the capabilities to do that. But then, um, you know, trying to sort of do a back test based on um, geolocation data that has really been unstable and changed through time and, you know, trying to sort of essentially vet what the vendor has said has been challenging. Um, but if you had to look at it more with a with a sort of a shorter window, especially during this period, then then yes, you know, from a macroeconomic environment point of view, um, you know, if you had to not look at it specific to a to a store or a a a um, a, a, a company, um, it gives you a broader picture. And you know, given um, while whilst we're discussing COVID and reopening of economies, I mean. Um, in terms of thinking ahead to consumer defaults and business defaults, uh, given the tough economic conditions, um, what types of, of data categories uh, or things uh, would, would you be looking at uh, you know, to prepare for that? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, fixed income credit, um, you know, um, I think cre credit is an interesting space. I mean, I think that still has a lot to evolve and mature, especially in terms of um, debt, data related to debt um, and, and sort of, you know, lending and loans um, would be would, would be interesting. Um, but I think as the space matures, you know, we should see many new use cases evolving in that in that area. Um, um, Oh, foot, the typical ones are like footfall traffic and transaction data is useful, but it's not uh, not going to give you an idea of the of the of the core kind of you know, credit health of a company and certain companies. But also another another thing I wanted to mention, um, Emmett, is that you know, we typically generally just try to focus on private. I'm mean, sorry, public companies. Um, and you know the the, the SMEs or, uh, or or the public company, uh, the private companies are is an area that um, has a lot of rich information, and you can kind of you know utilize that to see you know what's happening in the economy, but also you know how is that related to certain products and industries. Yeah, yeah, and maybe looking ahead um, in terms of the U.S. election is coming up soon now that the, the summer is is nearly over. Um, is uh, again any categories or different types of methodologies useful to maybe uh, not just try and predict the election, but uh, think about the impact? Yeah. yeah, it's a it's quite a it's quite a it's quite a broad one um, again because it's so unpredictable. Um, I, I think yeah, again you know relaying relying on survey based data um, 
you know, social media um, postings, um, you know, trends, um, you know, Google Trends and others um, could be quite beneficial and useful. I think um, you know, looking at your typical you know, transaction spending, geolocation is not going to do much in, in, the, in that space. It's more about sentiment. It's more about what are the people saying, what's the views and coming from, uh, you know, news, uh, social media is going to be, and survey data is going to be interesting. Makes sense. Um, so uh, before we finish, Hinesh, I'd like to you know get your thoughts on the future uh, as you look ahead with more data sets, better data science capabilities coming on, better storage, better compute. Um, you know what are your what are your thoughts? What are sort of say you know three examples or uh, use cases um, that you see that mightn't be there today that might come down the line? Sure. Sure. I think I think I think um, you may have mentioned this, Emmett, or Eagle Alpha mentioned this in one of your conferences, or it was a theme at one of your conferences where um, you know alternative data is just going to be data eventually, right? Um, that's that's going to be clear. Um, I do see that the use cases moving um, away from just being too biased on the equity side to fixing mine credit. Um, you know that space, even as a market in general. Um, from an investment and a trading point of view is evolving. Um, and uh, and that area will sort of, um, you know, um, start sort of increasing on the data side um, and the usage of that. However, you know, as the space, mat space matures, I do see applications on execution and, and, and risk also. So the use of alternative data combined with traditional sources, you know, can provide insights into execution timing, which can reduce uh, transaction costs. And, you know, although that's not directly related to um, you know an alpha model or an investment process you know that's end um, cost savings and beneficial to the end client um, which 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 I feel that that's a, that's an area that, uh, that, that that that's going to sort of expand the usage of alternative data thank you for those insights and I really appreciate your time today and for for joining the show thank you Emmett and the Eagle Alpha team again thank you that's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.